down. I'm trying to think. Uh, I know I've been announcing a couple of different things coming up. Anything in particular coming up soon? Other than the picnic in October, Night to Honor Israel, we're getting more volunteers. I really appreciate it. I think it'll be good for us to have uh, a good showing. And it's also important because there are five of us on the executive committee. Three of them are at this church. And so we need to find out who we We need people we know we can trust to do things we need to have done. And, there, you know, the other two are from... Uh, uh, First Baptist Katie, and same thing is true for them. They know people there they can trust, but you get a lot of people out there in uh, other places that volunteer to do things. They may be wonderful people, but you just don't know them, and you just don't know whether you can really fully trust them to uh, handle responsibilities or not, and you don't want to make a mistake at something like this. So I do appreciate all of those who have offered uh, offered help. Seems like there was one other thing, Alan. Was there something else? Oh, yeah, Jim Meyer's boxes in the, in the back. For uh, We need to get that all in by the end of September. Can you believe it's September already? And just as hot as August was so far. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to turn your cell phones off and to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the word. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful again to be here this evening, to be able to study your word, to reflect upon what you have revealed to us, that we may come to a greater understanding of who we are and what you've provided for us. Father, we continue to pray for those in this congregation who are facing uh, serious illnesses right now. We just pray that you would guide and direct their doctors and medical care, that you would comfort their families, and that you would strengthen them during this time. Father, we pray now that as we study your word, that we may be able to set aside the cares, the worries, the distractions, the pressures of life that so easily uh, get us off focus and that we may spend this next hour focusing upon your word and as God the Holy Spirit teaches us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we're working through a section of Romans where Paul is bringing to bringing to a conclusion what he has been driving toward since the middle of the first chapter of Romans, and that is showing uh, in an extremely logical, 
presentation supported from scripture from the Old Testament, not just from the excuse me, not just from the Torah, which are the first five books of the of the Old Testament. And sometimes the word Torah not only stands for the first five books of the Old Testament, but also for the entire Old Testament. But in some passages, and we see this in this part of Romans, it also relates to both the, uh, uh, you have the Torah, the uh, Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, uh, the writings. And uh, sometimes all of it's referred to as the Torah just because one part stands for the whole. But he supports this from these uh, Old Testament passages to show that what he is saying is not something new, it's not something different, but he is taking everything that has been stated, taught, revealed in the Old Testament that is pointing in a direction and saying that when the Old Testament canon closed, when the last book of the Old Testament canon in the Hebrew Scriptures, which is Second Chronicles in our English book, that's the order of books in the Hebrew canon. Our last book is Malachi, but that's not the last book in the Hebrew canon. That you look at Second Chronicles, that's the last book when, when God stopped speaking through the prophets at that point, approximately 400 B.C., that it wasn't the end. God had more to say. There is a completion to what was revealed then, and what uh, Paul is showing is that with the coming of Jesus and the accomplishment, fulfillment of salvation, and th- that aspect of the messianic uh, prophecies that were fulfilled the first time uh, Jesus came, that that uh, that fulfillment is then developed further, which is where he's going in this part of Romans chapter three. So he had asked the question, the rhetorical question: What then are we? Are we? That is, are we as Jews? because of our position in relation to God's plan. And that, pl- that position was determined by the Abrahamic covenant that we've studied many times, that God called out Abram in the Old Testament, promised that through him all the nations would be blessed, and that God would be working to bless all humanity through the Jewish people, and that this would meant that it was through the prophets and through the writings of Scripture, and the Jewish people would be the the recipients of divine revelation, they would be the custodians of the Scripture, and they would, were the ones to whom these promises were given in the Old Testament. But those that place of blessing was not a place of blessing that brought justification to them. Now, that word justification is very important as we get into, into, into Romans because the issue is in Romans really is to answer the question, or part of it is, how, how do we as human beings gain a standing before a righteous God? How can we as individuals who are guilty of sin, who disobeyed God, who are fallen creatures, how can we gain a standing before God? In other, and basically it's, how do we get righteousness? Can we do it on our own? And is that even possible? And Paul shows in these chapters that no, that is not possible. No one's ever done it. No one will ever do it. The Old Testament clearly teaches that all are under condemnation, that all have sinned. And so in this section we began to study a couple of lessons ago, we're looking at these specific quotes from the Old Testament. So he's saying, what then are we, that is, are we as Jews inherently, there's the idea, I'm just giving an expanded translation, are we inherently better than they, that is, the Gentiles? 
And his answer is no. Explanation, for we have previously charged in a legal sense before God both Jews and Greeks, that is Gentiles, that all are under sin, all are under condemnation. And then he begins a series of quotes. We looked at these in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. 10 is really a summary statement. It is not a direct quote from anything in the Old Testament, but it summarizes what is taught in the Old Testament. Romans 3, 11 and 12 find their source in Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And in Psalm 14, 1 through 3, the focus is on the uh, the thinking, the mentality, the darkness in the thought processes of the one who has rejected God. So this fits within, as I pointed out last time, within the flow of what Paul has said, starting off saying that there is a sufficient witness to the existence of God in the creation. Yet man has suppressed that truth in unrighteousness and professing to be smart, intelligent, educated, and academically astute, he has rejected God and become a fool and worships the creation rather than uh, rather than the creator. Uh, j- just the whole idea of worshiping the creation rather than creator uh, reminded me of, uh, I sent out an email yesterday. I've been having uh, Connie send email out to uh, everybody on the mailing list related to the um, newsletter uh, that comes, comes out each, um, each week usually in relation to the uh, uh, environmental issues. And it's very important to note that this has been all over the news. It was based on an article published in Nature Magazine. Now, remember, Nature Magazine is not a Christian magazine. It's not a religious magazine. It's not a a conservative journal. It is a science journal. And it is reporting the findings of uh, CERN, which is an organization that stands for a I think it's a German uh, title, which I'm not able to uh, recall or pronounce. But their, their findings in uh, a recent laboratory experiments that they developed over the last several years in Europe, which demonstrate conclusively, according to this article, that, that what produces warmer temperatures on the planet, what affects climate and cloud cover on planet Earth, has to do with cosmic rays being generated from the sun. The director of CERN, in his move of just gross political correctness, because, after all, the culture just worships the uh, creation rather than the God who controls the creation, uh, he issued a, a uh, mandate to, uh, to CERN that when they publish their findings, they can't indicate what it means. They can only indicate what their findings were. But what it means is that everybody who has bought into global warming has to change their mind because it shows conclusively, and this is just one of numerous studies that the mainstream media and the most guilty parties of the BBC in Europe, which have, in England, which has actually uh, passed a, um, uh, a policy that uh, they're prohibitive, prohibited from reporting on anybody, on any finding that doesn't uh, validate global warming. And it just shows the objectivity of the press. Uh, it doesn't exist. 
And you're, you're not hearing it on ABC, CBS. I, I haven't even heard anything on Fox News. It's just basically ignored. But this is profound. And uh, there was a, uh, uh, you know, there was a, a um, editorial yesterday morning from one of those editorialists I love to hate, Paul Kruger. Jay, you did a great job in your letter to the editor responding to uh, his assertions that, that uh, evangelicals are just basically anti-science. We're not anti-science. We're anti-bad science. We're anti-science that is based on sloppy evidence and faulty methodology, which is exactly what this whole uh, mess of global man-made global warming. Nobody debates whether there are temperature increases or decreases uh, in terms of atmospheric temperatures. The debate is whether or not it's anthropogenic, which means man-made. Is it the result of, of uh, too many hydrofluorocarbons in the atmosphere, too much, uh, too much exhaust? We saw, uh, you saw a film not long ago when I was gone, and one of the lines of evidence that I thought was, uh, was presented in, in, by one of those men was to show that uh, there's been an incredible improvement on in terms of uh, pollution and controls over the last 30 or 40 years. And the one that stuck with me was the uh, evidence that that if you had a 1967 Ford Mustang in good running condition and you had it sitting in your garage with the engine turned off, and if you also had at the same time a brand-new 2012 Ford Mustang with all of the uh, latest uh, equipment, and you're driving that brand-new Ford Mustang down Interstate 10 at 50 miles an hour, uh, you're producing more pollution into the atmosphere with that 67 Mustang sitting at home in your garage than the Mustang that's driving down uh, Interstate 10 at 55 miles an hour. And that is documented, and just one of the simple reasons for that is because the 67 uh, Mustang has an open carburetor, and it's, a, you know, all kinds of fuel is evaporating through the carburetor, which is not happening uh, with the uh, uh, 2012 Mustang. So there's all kinds of advances that have uh, radically changed uh, technology, but yet the doomsayers, the uh, earth worshipers, the tree huggers, uh, don't seem to understand that 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 the Christian position isn't that we don't want responsible use of the environment. I had one person actually write me and say, what you really want us to do is just to dump a bunch of pollution in the rivers. I did not reply. I wanted to reply, well, you're just an idiot who can't listen. That's not our position. Our position is that we don't think it's it's necessary for the government to waste millions and millions of dollars of my money and your money on projects that are built on bad, bad science and faulty technology. Uh, I don't know if you saw it today, but one of the things that got my blood pressure up first thing this morning, uh, you know, that's always good to kind of get your heart moving in the morning, uh, was that there was a, uh, a company out in California that the president went out and spoke to them, and he built them all up, and, and the federal government gave them $500 million of our money. $500 million of our money and to build solar, uh, solar panels. And they went bankrupt. The government just threw away our money. First of all, because they thought that this was, this was a wise investment. Now, do you know a bureaucrat who can make a wise investment? I, I've never met one. 
a bureaucrat. You know, I have trouble finding people who are well-trained financial advisors who can make a wise investment, much less some, some guy who got hired on the basis of affirmative action or whatever. So I'm getting off on my little rant this morning. But see, when we start worshiping the creation rather than the creator, what we do is we start instituting a whole lot of policies to validate falsehood. And it costs a lot of money. Stupidity and the worship of the creation, atheism, as it were, costs more money. A case can be made for this. Atheism costs this culture more money than uh, Christianity does, or religion, for a lot of different reasons. And, uh, and, and, but nobody wants to uh, study that or validate that or anything like that. But that's exactly why the Scripture says that those who reject God are fools. And it leads to foolishness in every area, every area of their life. Now, Paul comes back to this topic, validating what he is saying again by quoting from uh, from the Old Testament. So Romans three, eleven and twelve. There's none who understands. He doesn't say there's none who can understand. He's saying there is none who understands. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. He says there's none who seeks after God. It doesn't say there's none who can. Uh, it says there's none who does. They've all turned aside. Together they become unprofitable. They are of no value. They make bad decisions based on a foolish mindset. There is none who does good, no, not one. That, that's pretty exclusive. I don't find uh, room for a, a um, an exception in that last phrase. This is also just stated very clearly by Solomon, who wrote uh, Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, he said, For there is not a just man on earth. The word there for just is tzaddik in the Hebrew. There is not a righteous man. It could just as easily and probably more correctly be translated righteous. There is not a righteous man on earth. Now, there are men who, who are righteous because God has given them righteousness. There are men who do relative righteousness compared to other human beings. But in terms of meeting the standard of God, Solomon says, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. We looked at the next uh, quotation, which came from Psalm chapter 5, verse 9. And out of that verse, only the last part was uh, used by Paul in terms of application to his argument. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. This is characteristic of the one who rebels against God. It is uh, stated in, translated in the Septuagint. Their throat is an open sepulcher, same idea, uh, sepulcher, grave, tomb. Uh, with their tongues, they have used deceit. Uh, flattery is often deceit, but it's more clear in the Septuagint what the idea is. And then in Romans uh, 3.13, their throat is an open tube, and with their tongue they practice deceit. So it's pointing out the uh, prevalence of the sins of the tongue, slander, gossip, maligning, lying. All of these come under the category of sins of the tongue. And then I went to the next quote, which is in the second part of Romans 3.13, uh, it's taken from the last half of Romans 140, verse 3. The poison of asps is under their lips, Selah. And the asp was one of the uh, m- most uh, well-known 
and most venomous of serpents in the ancient world. This refers to the uh, Egyptian cobra, most likely. And so this had become a metaphorical statement uh, related to uh, the bitterness of, of language and the harm that is done through the sins of the, the tongue. Then we came to Psalm chapter 10, verse 7, quoted in verse 14. We stopped last time right about here. And so the next statement, again, continuing the fact that that um, the mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, speaking again of the sins of the tongue, for out of the mouth come the issues, the issues of life. So let's go to Psalm 10 as we look at this verse in its original uh, context. In Psalm chapter 10. Uh, Psalm chapter 10, again, speaks of uh, the wicked. It is a psalm wherein uh, David, as the psalmist, is calling uh, calling upon God and calling upon God to intercede in the midst of uh, adversity in his life. And the way this psalm begins is to vocalize articulate two questions. And these questions are questions that are commonly asked by people we know, people in our families, and there are times when we ask these questions. Because as we go through life, we face injustice. We deal with people who are in authority over us. We deal with systems in terms of where we work, where we live, government systems, bureaucratic systems, that are unfair and unjust. And we see people who are able to game the system, and we just wonder how is it that they're able to just siphon off all of this uh, uh, financial aid from the government, and we ought to get at least a dime or two for legitimate reasons, and we can't really even manage uh, to get that. And so we ask questions as if, uh, uh, we ask questions related to the fact that it seems like There's no justice. And where in the world is God with all of this injustice going on? And you can think of many different times in history when people or nations have gone through incredible suffering, and yet it's, and it seems as if God has forgotten them. So these two questions uh, express the fact that we all ask where God is in times of difficulty. Verse 1 reads, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Now, that doesn't mean that God hides in times of trouble, that God's not there. It just seems that way to us because we do not always understand what God is doing in our life. And as we go through various circumstances and situations, and we, we think, well, God ought to be here doing something. We shouldn't be going through this. And yet again and again, as I pointed out, Scripture teaches that we do go through difficult times. We are to expect that. We're living in the devil's world. We're living in a fallen world. Life is not what God uh, intended it to be. Life is not what it ought to be because of sin, because we live with sinful people. We're married to sinful people. We have to put up with sinful parents and sinful children. We have to put up with sinful, corrupt politicians and leaders. We have to put up with people who are elevated in authority over us beyond their ability to perform and to carry out any task. And so sometimes it just seems as if life gets pretty burdensome. And so we wonder where in the world God is. Well, God's just sitting back there. He just gave you a final exam or a midterm. And it's your opportunity to try to apply 
what you've learned in the Word to that situation or circumstance. And so that is what we see in this psalm as the psalmist is thinking about where God is. And, and there's a thought process here as he is meditating and reflecting upon his uh, negative, adverse circumstances and the plan and purpose and character of God. In the uh, next section, in verses 2 through 7, uh, David pictures the characteristics of the wicked person who oppresses the righteous, and he uses very graphic terms to express this. He uses terms like uh, proud and boastful, people they're blasphemous, arrogant, they're careless about God, they're deceitful, they're destructive, they're wicked, and he paints an, an extremely dark but a accurate picture on the basic orientation of the human heart. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And he's talking about the nicest, sweetest, most wonderful person that you know. And I know there's a couple of people in this congregation every now and then somebody says, well, you know, they don't have sin nature. They don't have much of one probably, but this is true about even them. They are just as we are. We all have a heart that is deceitful and wicked according to God, according to the Old Testament scriptures. So Jeremiah echoes this. Now let let me just read through this a minute and pick up or highlight all of the negatives that you see in this section from verse 2 to verse 7. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Now, it's not, notice, I just want you to pay attention that he's not talking about wicked government. He didn't say the wicked Republicans, the wicked conservatives. He says the wicked. Because, you see, in Scripture, what you find is, and pay attention because you are going to hear this like you do every election season. And especially this year, it seems like uh, there with uh, certain candidates whose religious orientation is at the forefront. Uh, there's going to be more talk about this, and I've already seen some things and some uh, opinion pieces where somebody who operates, who, who doesn't know, have a clue about the Bible or biblical interpretation, pulls a few verses out of context and uses those to try to show that, see, this person has uh, no sense of responsibility to take care of the poor or the needy, Every verse in both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament that that indict the culture for failing to take care of the, the poor and the widows and the orphans is indicting not the government but the individuals because the Bible emphasizes that it's the indiv- responsibility of the individual, the responsibility of the family unit to take care of the poor and the uh, orphan and the widow and the needy. It's not the responsibility of government. The Bible completely rejects that idea. And if you look at the context of those passages, uh, you have to understand that it doesn't refer at all to government. And if you want to make it refer to government, I challenge you, use that same interpretation to, and, and that same method of interpretation to interpret your, the instructions for filling out your income tax 
and I will see you in tax court next year as you get ready to go off to prison. We have to learn how to interpret Scripture without just thinking that we can make it mean whatever in the world we think it means. Read the context. So the wicked here is talking about an individual, and he is arrogant. And so in his arrogant, he persecutes the poor. And so David says, let them be caught in the plot which they have devised. Now, this brings in an interesting, an interesting idea that you find in a number of psalms. They are called imprecatory psalms. And an imprecatory psalm is a psalm where David is petitioning God to bring judgment upon his enemies. Now, some people say, well, we can't do that today. Why not? What's wrong with it? In fact, as, as we studied at a couple of weeks ago in Acts in Romans chapter 13, the Old Testament principle is, quoted, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The idea of vengeance there, as I pointed out many times, isn't the idea of personal vendetta, getting personal revenge. The core meaning of the Old Testament word translated vengeance has to do with the execution and application of justice. And that's what, what in these imprecatory psalms, that is exactly what David is doing, is he's calling upon God and his justice to bring judgment and discipline upon those who are in rebellion against him. It's not some personal uh, vendetta. He's not just saying he's not, he's not calling for this out of the fact that his own personal feelings have been hurt or that he has been uh, gone through personal rejection and he is not being motivated by a sense of his own personal rights being violated. He is calling upon God to uh, operate in terms of his eternal justice because his justice is being violated by those around him. Verse 3, he explains further why he is calling upon God to allow the wicked to be caught in the, their own traps. He says, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He's boastful. He's arrogant. He has, and his heart's desire is wicked. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. Now, greed in Colossians 3 is tantamount to one form of idolatry. It is worshiping the things that money can buy and money rather than worshiping God. So it's a violation of the first commandment in the Torah. Uh, then he goes on to say, the wicked in his proud countenance uh, does not seek God. So he is hostile to God. He is negative toward God. God is in none of his thoughts. He never thinks about the f- being grateful to God. He doesn't wake up in the morning and think about how wonderful it is that God has provided us with beautiful, clear blue skies every day wakes up in the morning and grouses about the fact that it's going to be another hot 105-degree day without any rain. How many times have we been in Houston in the middle of January when we're in our uh, 27th day of no sunshine and rain that we have uh, prayed for a clear blue sky? Now that you have it every day, you don't thank God for it. So we need to thank God for everything that we have and focus upon that and putting and being grateful for what he has given us. Uh, so the wicked doesn't have God in any of his thoughts. He ignores God. Verse 5 says, his ways are always prospering. This is the sense of injustice that David has. The wicked seems to be getting away with it, God. 
deal with him? Why don't you do something about it? His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. Say, God, you're so far away from him that he doesn't experience divine judgment. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. No matter how people try to deal with this wicked person, no matter what enemies there are, they never seem to be able to uh, take, take him down, and he just looks down upon them. And then we see his motiv- the motivation of his, of, his, of his mental attitude, verse 6, his heart. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity because he thinks he is above it all. And then we come to verse 7. And verse 7 is the quote that we have in our passage. Now, I want you to notice on the chart that on the left column, we have the New King James translation of Psalm 10.7. The section that is underlined is the section that is uh, quoted by Paul in Romans 3.14. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit. In the middle column, we have the Septuagint. I told you last night that the chapter divisions and versification, there's a new word for you if you haven't uh, picked up on that, versification, like pagination. Uh, The versification in the Septuagint is not the same as you have in the uh, Masoretic text or even in the the, uh, Old Testament. So it's actually in the Septuagint, it's Psalm 927, 8 and 9 run together. So whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness uh, and fraud, adds that other element, translates to fraud rather than oppression, under his tongue or trouble and pain. So Paul just picks out the one phrase and applies it, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And when Paul quotes that, he's, he's not just saying his mouth, this is what he says, this is what rolls off the end of his tongue, What rolls off the end of his tongue in verse 7 is a manifestation of the arrogance of his heart and the wickedness of his heart, which is what is the focal point of verses 2 through 6. And so when Paul talks again about the sins of the tongue here in verse 14, he's talking not only about uh, the overt sin of of sins of the tongue, but he is also talking about his... He is also talking about his um, uh, mental attitude state. Now, the word for cursing here is a word for taking, uh, just taking an oath, and it can be used in a positive sense or in a negative sense. But here it is used in a negative sense where he is uh, probably using God's name in an invalid way in relation to some sort of oath. And so his mouth is full of this uh, wrong oath-bearing, as it were, and bitterness. That's the content of of his speech. So it is always bringing forth uh, bitterness. And then uh, the, the psalm goes on to say that under his tongue is trouble and iniquity, which is a metaphorical way of saying that this is what he produces by, his, by the, uh, the result of his sins of the tongue. So again, we see that pa- Paul develops the indictment of the uh, the wicked, that is, the person who is not righteous, which is all mankind. Now let's go to the next uh, quotation that's in Romans three fifteen through 17, which actually comes from three verses 
or two verses rather in the um, in the New King James from the prophet from the prophet Isaiah. So we've looked at the Psalms, which are part of the writings of the Ketuvim, and now we go to a passage in the prophets, a pro, uh, passage in uh, Isaiah. So turn to Isaiah chapter fifty-nine. Isaiah chapter fifty-nine. And we'll take a look at the context a little bit. Now, Isaiah chapter 59 is focusing again on the indictment that God is bringing through Isaiah to the southern kingdom of Judah because they have rebelled against God and they have disobeyed God. And in Isaiah's prophecy, he is announcing the fact that if they do not turn from their idolatry, if they do not turn from their arrogance and their self-centeredness, if they do not turn back to God in terms of obedience, then God is going to bring judgment upon the southern kingdom of Judah, and he will eventually remove them from the land. Earlier in Isaiah, he goes through a number of the different judgments, including recognition and the prophecy that they would be destroyed by the Babylonians. Here again, he is, as he comes to the close of his prophecy, he brings this uh, reminder in the last two chapters here, 58 and 59, a reminder of their sinfulness. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So his focus initially is on the character of God, who God is. Remember, God is always the standard, so we have to step back and think about who God is. The, the first phrase, the Lord's hand is not shortened, is a negative way of saying that God's power is not limited. The u- utilization of the hand as a metaphor for power, it is the that which is at the end of the arm. The arm is often used as well for a metaphor, metaphor of power and strength. So here the hand of the Lord represents his power. It's not shortened. It's not limited. Uh, it is His omnipotence is not limited so that it cannot save. In other words, he is saying through the use of these negatives that God's power is still capable of saving. Then he says his ears, nor is his ear heavy. That means it's not that God isn't listening. Now there's a point that is clear in the Scriptures. It's clear from the Psalms. Psalm 66, 18 says... Um, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now think about that. This is a passage that comes out of the Hebrew Scriptures, comes out of the Old Testament. It is a clear statement of David that if a person regards sin, if they are the wicked and not the righteous, then God doesn't hear their prayers. Now it doesn't mean that God can't, isn't aware in his omniscience. He's certainly aware. It doesn't mean that God uh, didn't needs a hearing aid for some people. Uh, it means that God is not going to efficaciously listen to that prayer. It's a prayer that will be known by God at one level, but God will not uh, respond to that prayer. There's only one prayer that God responds to from the wicked, from the unrighteous, from the unbeliever, and that is a prayer that God would give them more knowledge about him so that they can have a relationship with him. Otherwise, God really, the scriptures are clear, God doesn't listen 
to those prayers. There's a lot of Christians God doesn't listen to their prayers because they're not in fellowship. They're regarding iniquity in their heart. There are uh, and and no unbeliever is listened to by God. This is the testimony. It's consistent throughout uh, both uh, Old Testament and New Testament that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying here, is that it's not that God isn't listening, but he's not listening to you because of your sin. Now, we get people in our modern culture who always get their uh, knickers in a knot over the fact that uh, that Christians say that some people don't get their prayers listened to or answered by God. They have this pseudo-democratic concept that God is somehow obligated to give equal attention to every single individual. I don't know where they got that idea. It's not present in the, in the Scripture. It's not present in the Bible. If we're going to be faithful to uh, the Bible as Christians, then we need to believe what the Bible says, and people need to get off our back and go read the Scripture instead of always uh, judging Christians because they think Christians are judging them. And I don't know any Christians walking around saying, you don't get your prayers answered. They're just teaching the truth. Most of the time, we don't get our prayers answered because we're out of fellowship. But we don't, it doesn't bother us for somebody to say that when we're out of fellowship, God doesn't listen to us because we understand what the Bible teaches. And uh, only arrogant people who think that somehow God is obligated to listen to every whine that comes out of their mouth, that they uh, they get upset when they find out that God might not be listening to them. But this is exactly what Isaiah is saying here. Uh, God's ear isn't heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. God's not listening. God's not paying attention. He doesn't want to pay attention because it's not because God moved, it's because you moved and you went, you not only went outside of the room, you went outside of the house, you crossed the seas and went to the other side of the world somewhere else and you removed yourself so far from God that God is not listening to you until there is a restoration, until this separation problem is resolved. And what is it that separates us from God according to the writer of Isaiah. He says, your sins have hidden his face from you. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1, 2, and 3, is that because of sin, every one of us is separated from God. It happens legally from the moment we're born, we're born spiritually separated from God. And every human being is born in that state. And only the grace of God can change that status. And it can only be changed by God as the one who removes the barrier. And that barrier is composed of sin. And sin is what separates us. And without that problem being solved, we can't, as unrighteous, be in the presence of righteousness. And so... So Isaiah says, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For, and then we have an explanation, for your hands are defiled with blood. So this is an overt sin related to violence and murder. They're responsible for death one way or the other. 
Your fingers with iniquity, you have done things. The fingers stand for metaphorically for the things that you've produced, the things that you've done with your life. Your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. I always find it interesting every now and then you talk to somebody and they think that uh, they're really not a sinner. And yet when you look at the Scripture and the description of sins in the Scripture, they emphasize not the major overt sins that many people focus on, but um, what most people don't ever think of, uh, sins of worry, sins of anxiety, sins of fear, mental attitude sins, sins of arrogance, sins of self-sufficiency in contrast to God dependency. Uh, these are... These are sins that separate us from God. These are the root sins that manifest themselves in various sins of the tongue as well as overt sins. Uh, Isaiah says that your hands, your fingers, your lips, your tongue. Notice a progression there. All of a person, all of these different body parts come together representing the totality of a person and that has all yielded Sin, iniquity, the violation of God's law, to speak lies, to mutter perversity. Verse 4, no one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. In other words, there is among those in the culture not a concern about righteousness. Now, there is a false concern about righteousness, and I think that among some religious people, in different religious communities, they're hypersensitive to righteousness and morality, and they run around uh, kind of uh, with an uber-sensitivity to, uh, to morality, and they're just uptight and trying to, uh, trying to get into everybody else's business and dictate a, moral co- a strict moral code to everybody. That's the other extreme. So you have one extreme of licentiousness and the other extreme of legalism. And this is what you have in this culture. There's a sense of just pure moral relativism. There's no sense of absolutes here. Nobody's focused on true justice. One of the things we've seen over the last 50 years in our nation's judicial system is that the judicial system has become so focused on the rights of the criminal that they have ignored justice for the victim. And this is seen again and again and again. And it's they've swung the pendulum far to the uh, other extreme. Now, we all recognize that it's better to let a guilty man go go free in some cases than to punish an innocent one. And that's true in a theoretical sense. But that's We've gone far beyond that. We let criminals go on the most uh, inconsequential minutia instead of punishing them. And then our punishment is built on a concept of rehabilitation rather than punishment. And so that fails as well. And as a result, we have a massive explosion within the within prisons, a high recidivism rate because we coddle them so much within prisons that when they get out, they can't function, so they commit crimes just to get back in uh, so that they can have everything, uh, everything taken care of. We're not concerned about justice for the victim. We're concerned about a pseudo-justice for the criminal. 
uh, nor does anyone plead for truth. We live in a culture that's rejected the concept of truth. We live in a culture that says there is no truth. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and let's just all uh, let one another just go and live their life however they think it ought to be lived. Well, if everybody's truth is truth, then how do you know that that's true? That's a self-refuting syllogism. You can't make those kinds of statements. It's just pure irrationality. This was what was happening in Israel. They trust in empty words and speak lies. Now, the application of that is just so obvious. This is typically what happens every year as we begin this election cycle. Uh, I would guess that most people in this country are going to trust in empty words from politicians and the lies of politicians. And it's amazing the things that uh, are said by politicians that they that are knowingly said as uh, to be and knowingly known and, and are known to be untrue when they are said. They trust they trust in empty words and speak lies, and that says something about the population of the nation that is gullible. It will believe what it wants to believe as opposed to what is right or true because they've lost any sense of absolute truth or absolute uh, knowledge. They conceive evil and they bring forth iniquity. Conceiving evil has to do with the mental attitude state. Bringing forth iniquity is the overt sin, sins of the tongue or overt sin. Verse 5, again relating it to the serpent, they hatch viper's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. So it's producing, again, it is using the imagery of viper's eggs and spider's web, uh, spider's web to indicate that which uh, produces uh, disaster in, within the culture and brings death to the culture. Uh, verse 5, uh, the last half of verse 5 develops the idea of the viper's egg, and verse 6 develops the idea of the spider's web. Their webs will not become garments. You can't dress yourself, your, yourself up in a cloak like the emperor's robe, that does emperor's new clothes that don't exist. You can't manufacture a fantasy world, and then go live as if it is true. Sooner or later, that fantasy world is going to disappear uh, like a mist under the sun. Uh, their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. They, they, what they are engaged in is insufficient because their works are works of iniquity and the act of violence is in their hands. And then we come to verse 7 which is the first of our quotes here in uh, Romans 3.15. Their feet run to evil. This indicates a propensity to evil, a desire to be engaged in evil, an attraction to evil that is not restrained through self-discipline or self-control. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. Now, the Apostle Paul picks up two phrases. They make haste to shed innocent blood, which has to do with overt sin and bringing violence, murder into uh, into the life, and then wasting and destruction are in their paths. That's the result of this. It brings 
emptiness. It, it's a waste of resources, and it destroys the life. Verse 8 states, The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice. Uh, there's no justice in their ways. They have made themselves have crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. So verse 17, Romans 3.17 quotes from the, I highlighted the last part related to peace, but also the first part of verse 8, the way of peace they have not known. So Paul pulls from this in verse 15, he draws from the first part of 59.7. In verse uh, 16, he draws from the second part of 59.7. And then in Romans 3.17, he draws from the first part of 59.8. The way of peace they have not known, it brings, it, it destroys inner tranquility. It brings emotional turmoil. I think one of the reasons that we have seen such an increase of emotional problems and so-called psychological problems in our culture over the last 50 or 60 years is not because we're more aware of it, is because with the removal of moral absolutes and a concern for justice and a concern for truth, which brings with it the, the, uh, an, uh, a teaching and an instruction, an inculcation of self-discipline and self-control, that when that is removed, then because there is moral instability in our thinking, there's a loss of absolute, that the result is that, that it brings emotional trauma into the soul. And that can only be reversed by bringing those controls back into life the way it is. And one of the results of a sinful path in Romans 3.17 is it's a destruction of personal peace. Peace in the Scripture rarely, if with only a couple of exceptions that I know of, speaks of the opposite of violence. Usually it's the opposite of mental tranquility, uh, happiness, a uh, relaxed uh, mental attitude. I mean, uh, peace is the opposite of, of worry, anxiety, uh, mental instability, uh, fear. Uh, all of this is normally the opposite of peace. And then we come to, um, let me skip through that. Now we come down to the last quote coming from Psalm 36.1. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. And so this summarizes the last clause, there is no fear of God before his eyes, is what is picked up by Paul in Romans 3.18 in the last part of his string of Old Testament quotations. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, when you think about this phrase, the fear of God, the first thing we should think of is the Proverbs. Again and again in Proverbs and in, and in Psalms, you have the statement that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. That we can't go anywhere in life in terms of wisdom or knowledge unless that is grounded on the proper acknowledgement and respect of the authority of God. That's what the term fear of God relates to. It's not fear in the sense of of uh, waking up in the middle of the night and thinking somebody has uh, invaded your home and now you are in a panic. It's not that sense of fear. It is fear in the sense of having a, a healthy respect for authority, a proper respect for authority and for the consequences that come 
when we violate that authority, when we disobey that authority. It is the kind of fear that uh, some of us had when our mothers would say, well, just wait until your father gets home. And when we heard that, we knew we were seriously in trouble. So the sinner has no fear of God. And so this is characteristics of the fool who, back in Romans, one who has rejected God, who has uh, professed himself to be wise, but he has become a fool. He has rejected the truth of God and the wisdom of God. And so this is the standard orientation of the human heart. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, uh, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. So this is our normal orientation. But Paul is not going to stop here because this just paints that negative picture. He's going to go on starting uh, with verse 21 after the next couple of verses summarize this and its relation to the law. He will go into Romans uh, 3.21 where he begins to deal with the fact that even though we are hopeless and helpless in achieving the kind of righteousness that God demands, God has provided the solution. He has a way to give us righteousness, and it is a free gift, and that the only way that we can ever be righteous before God is to accept his free gift of righteousness, which comes when we put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And it is because there is the truth of of, of God's righteousness as a free gift that we can have hope, and that we can have certainty and assurance of salvation in this life. And it's only by uh, trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, thank you for this opportunity to study uh, these things this evening, to think our way through these Old Testament passages, and to realize the extent of our depravity, that because of sin it has pervaded every aspect of our being, It uh, works from the root of arrogance and works itself out through various other other sins and just shows that that, uh, not that we're as bad as we can be or could be, but that we're just not capable of living up to the standard that you set in the the law, the standard you have set of your own righteousness, that, that the law was given, as Paul says in the next couple of verses, that the law was given not to give us a way to gain righteousness, but to show that ultimately we just can't do it. It's not possible. But instead, you have freely given to us a way where we can have that righteousness by simply trusting in you. And so, Father, we thank you for that gift of righteousness, the gift of salvation that is not based on who we are, but is based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. And it's ours by simply trusting in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.